1977 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am not an extremely tall catcher for the Minnesota Twins, but other mm-hmm. than that, I am well. Have you <laughs> seen everyone discovering the miracle that is Grayson Grin- <laughs> Griner? Griner? Yes. Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. He's, uh, he's actually a former Effectively Wild guest. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, on a, a podcast that we did with just tall catchers, just yeah. <laughs> all the tallest catchers in history joined us on the podcast. The this league of extraordinary six foot six catchers yeah. were on the show all together talking about how hard it is on their knees. <laughs> so I will uh, link to that on the show page for anyone who missed it. But yeah, I guess uh, anytime Grayson Griner goes somewhere else, everyone discovers that They're he like, is in Whoa! fact a tall catcher. Yeah, he's still <laughs> tall. And you know, I get it. Like you, you maybe you aren't uh, hanging out thinking, what are former backups for the Detroit Tigers doing with their careers? But he's like had big league time since like 2018. Yeah. So I don't want to say that I'm like a, a hipster because mm-hmm. I was, you know, temporarily not confident that I knew how to say his last name. So <laughs> who am I? Who am I to be fussy? But yeah, big, tall guy. Still, still tall. Yeah, I have uh, watched his career with great interest after he was an effectively wild guest. I mean, at that point, he had made it, I think, when he was right. on the show. Anything after that is gravy, really. But I'm right. sure he's happy that he has continued to accrue Major League Service time in oh, addition sure. to his effectively wild appearance and now effectively wild mention. Just it's all coming up, Grayson, these days. Anyway. Yeah. We have uh, a busy, packed, exciting week for you all, I think, our usual complement of four team previews. So today we will be previewing the Toronto Blue Jays with Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic and the Kansas City Royals with Annie Rogers of MLB.com. And then at the end of the week, we will have two more previews, the Rays and the Pirates. And then sandwiched in between in the middle of the week, we will discuss the WBC, which Mm -hmm. will be starting this week. And also, I don't know if you noticed this, but our friend Sam Miller started a Substack, And we will be talking to Sam Miller about that a little later this week, too. So lots to be excited about and to look forward to. But just before we get to any of that, just uh, the one important thing that we all have to discuss right now. Did you see the second home run that Shohei Otani hit (laughs) in his exhibition? The Samurai Japan WBC team has played an exhibition game or multiple exhibition games against NPB teams. They played the Hanshin Tigers and Shohei Otani hit two bombs and they were both bombs. But the first of the bombs was uh, a particularly explosive one. And I'll I'll just uh, send you the link just in case you hadn't seen it. And of course, I will include it on the show page for everyone. But some home runs are impressive because they are hit so solidly and go so far. And others are impressive because they are not hit so solidly. And still, they go so far. So. 
I should preface this by saying that Shohei Otani warned everyone, as my physical condition isn't 100% because of jet lag, I feel a bit worried about missing a pitch over the plate. I wouldn't worry. This home run, which was uh, off a real pitcher, this was uh, Hiroto Saiki of the Tigers, who in his return from Tommy John surgery last season in the MPP had a 1.5 ERA, and he's a, a fairly hard thrower by the standards of the league, although this was not one of his harder throws. This was just a, a titanic blast by Shohei Otani that if anyone else swung like that, I think you would say that's a pop-up to second or short right or something, right? Like yeah. this this ball got out to center field 122 meters or 400 feet away, and it was not exactly a, a wall scraper. No. And he was down on one knee. Now, I guess it's not accurate to say that he hit it from one knee because uh, he went to one knee just after he made right. contact. He was in the process of sinking to one knee. <laughs> and then, but he was totally off balance, like leaning forward and and just did the Adrian Beltre basically down to one knee. And somehow this got out easily to yeah. just a, a little bit right of center. Just I'm looking forward to watching Shohei Otani in this tournament and in the season, which will not be a surprise to anyone, but it's, just, it's, it's nice to be reminded, you know, like uh, every time a season starts and we all marvel at how tall Grayson Griner is and yeah. then we also remember that Shohei Otani exists and does things like this. So pretty, pretty pumped. So I appreciate that you decided to watch this and draw from it like, you know, actual like baseball insight, like look at the marvel that is Otani because I thought that the thing that you might focus on was his celebration as yes. he rounds third because that was fun too. Mm -hmm. I think that Lars Newbar is making mm -hmm. his his presence felt because here yes. we have we have a pepper grinder. We have mm -hmm. a and and here's a question for you. You're Lars Newbar, pretend. Okay. You're <laughs> pretending you're Lars Newbar. Okay. Are you stoked to see Otani do the pepper grinder? <laughs> Because it's like, wow, like the, you know, arguably the best player in baseball has adopted this thing that I do and we have camaraderie and, you know, he is my colleague now and we are, mm -hmm. you know, uh, of the same team or, or Ben, do you <laughs> think? Well, now no one's going to remember that I did the pepper grinder. <laughs> right. They're going to think Otani is the originator of the pepper grinder, mm. which I don't say to knock the you know the good people of St. Louis who certainly make their presence felt online and probably have let a lot of people know that uh, <laughs> this is this is a Lars Newbar joint if only because it's fun to say Lars Newbar joint yeah but if you're Lars are you like hmm <laughs> I think if Shohei Otani decided that something I did was worth copying, I think that would be the ultimate form of flattery. I mean, not just the imitations is a serious form of flattery, but, but Shohei Otani, right. the singular being, copying yeah. something that I originated, I I think I'd feel pretty good about that. Yeah, you really love him, don't you? You oh, just I deeply, like deeply you just love him. Really yes. love him, and <laughs> you know I don't say that like it's a silly choice. It seems like a good choice, but mm -hmm. you know every now and again, Ben, I'm reminded like Ben, he really, yeah, he really loves him. Yeah, you know? fire burns deep and high, and. <laughs> 
deep yeah. and high. <laughs> I mean, I think, right, because uh, Lars, I mean, I guess you could say that, yes, he had his trademark celebration co-opted. But one of the great things about the WBC is that you get this pollination, oh, right? Yeah. And you get players who wouldn't normally play each other and see each other's celebrations, uh, playing yeah. each other or sharing clubhouses with each other. And then these things circulate around the league. So, you know, I'm sure he probably wanted to impart the pepper grinding mentality to mm. any team he plays with and and he probably I mean he didn't have to bring it to Team Japan right I mean he could have kept it secret kept it to himself but he ported it over there clearly and uh, Shohei decided it was worth doing well and to be clear I'm not I'm not accusing Otani of anything. I'm not no. saying that this is yeah, celebration. Just that he's he's so famous that, right. that anything he does he will eclipse. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, Lars, you know, that's his signature move. I, I think that's probably established enough that if anything, he will get more glory and reflected glory now because Shohei Otani has adopted something he did. Yeah. I just sent you another link to <laughs> what I, I think is maybe the horniest thread. I've seen on the baseball subreddit. Oh my because, gosh. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's there's, he's, there's he's busting lot. out of of, of his <laughs> shirts maybe, and ballparks. Maybe <laughs> he's freeing out. the nipple here. Yeah. I, <laughs> this well, is <laughs> I wanna know who's responsible for that turn of phrase. Like, I don't know. Uh, I adopted it like Shohei Otani adopted the pepper grinder from Lars Dupar. It's not my phrase. <laughs> no, I no, I know it's not. I know um, you know that. Yeah. I I think it's I think it's a delightful phrase, Ben. You know? Uh-huh. I don't use it. Um mm-hmm. Because when do I have occasion to? <laughs> Except for right now. Yeah, right. I mean, the nipples could be freer. Certainly. Well, right. He could not be wearing a shirt. Yeah, we can tell that he has them, though. Is the thing like you know they're they're clearly impressing themselves upon his shirt because uh, he was warming up. I guess. <laughs> Did you think he didn't have them, like a Ken doll or something? <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure I've seen shirtless photos of Shohei. Oh In fact, gosh. I know I have. <laughs> Look, I I follow some Shobei accounts, you know, oh. that are just uh, very much fan accounts of Shohei Otani, and and it's usually not like you know off the field shirtless shots, beefcake shots, but occasionally it can be. So. Uh-huh. And I don't unfollow when that happens. So in this case, he was uh, practicing before his first WBC exhibition. And, you know, we don't typically see baseball players in in form-fitting gear, right? Right. Unless unless they're one of the players who wear extremely tight pants, let's say. Mm. But especially the upstairs, you know, a, a jersey, I mean, you can tell with some guys uh, that they're pretty built but but other guys it's a little harder right and with Shohei I mean you can tell he has just like the the hugest shoulders you've ever seen just like the broadest back here but I mean in this case he's wearing like a tight tee he's you know he's showing some arm he's showing some some trap it's uh it's a big build here so I don't know if he's bigger my wife and I were just discussing whether he is larger than he was last year he's no smaller though that's for sure right yeah there are hundreds of comments in this reddit thread and the most upvoted one currently is this whole thread should be put in horny jail so (laughs) if i am committed then i will have uh, plenty of company in my cell i suppose yeah i mean what can one what can one say that you haven't already been, you know? I don't know. Yeah, perhaps I should have said less. Who knows? But I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I'm no. not suggesting you say less. I think 
that your clear and comfortable admiration for him is delightful and I support you. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. facets of his game, his appearance, uh, yeah. his personality, really just the total package. So let's uh, get to previewing. So as I said, we're doing Blue Jays and Royals today. And I always uh, tell you all what the playoff odds page says about the teams that we are discussing. Mm. So the Blue Jays. Right now are projected for 87.4 wins, according to fan graphs and the depth charts and the zips and steamer projection systems, which gives them currently a 26% chance to win the AL East and a 71% chance to make the playoffs. And then we have the Royals projected for 72 wins which gives them about a 3% chance to win the AL Central and about a 5% chance to make the playoffs. And this time, I'm going to debut a, a new feature here, which is I'm going to give everyone a trivia question that pertains to the two teams that we are previewing. And then at the end of the episode, I will give you the trivia answer. Oh, so so I, don't actually, have to, I don't have to answer. I will not put you on the spot. Okay. No, <laughs> just everyone else. But I do know even... the answer. I mean, obviously. Oh, I assume. Yes, yeah, clearly. <laughs> but the question, and really, I guess it's a few questions. So there's nothing particularly that links these two teams. Uh, they're here because they're the order that we were doing teams just sorted by projections going right. from the middle out. And they are linked in some ways, I guess. Uh, Whit Merrifield played for both of them last mm. year. They're two of the bluer big league teams, I guess you could say, uniform-wise. Oh, I thought you meant that they were sad. Well, sometimes, but <laughs> we could come up with other things that link them. But the trivia question, which uh, I will ask about every two-team pairing that we do for the rest of this preview series, and, and maybe I will go back and provide what the answers would have been for the rest of the teams that we have already previewed. I didn't think of this until now, but three questions. One, which team of the Blue Jays or the Royals do you think has the better head-to-head -head record? Oh. So Blue Jays versus Royals all time. That's question one. Question two, who is the first player who played for both the Blue Jays and the Royals in his career? So just uh, give me the first player or I'll give you the, the first hitter and the first pitcher who played for both of those teams uh, at any point in their career. And then third question is... Give me the leading Fangraphs war getter of any pitcher who pitched for both the Blue Jays and the Royals and any hitter who played for both the Blue Jays and the Royals. So the first player to play for both of these teams and best hitter and pitcher to at some point have played for both of these teams in the head-to-head -head record. You can stew on that while we do our previewing and I will provide the answers uh, at the end. Hopefully that'll be fun for people. It's a really good thing that I am not allowed to offer answers at this stage because it would just be so unfair obvious. to other people. Yeah. yeah, it would just be so rude of me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for refraining from spoiling it for everyone. And uh, we will get right to our first preview guest now. All right, we are joined now by Caitlin McGrath, who covers the Toronto Blue Jays for The Athletic. Caitlin, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. Glad to have you. And 
Before we preview 2023, let's briefly review 2022 just to dredge up the famous slash infamous Vlad Guerrero quote heading into last season, which I'm sure you're not sick of hearing by this point. But Vlad, of course, said what we did last year, last year being 2021, was a trailer. Now you guys are going to see the movie. And it wasn't a bad movie. It was just a really great trailer. (laughs) And the Jays did win a wild card last year, which they didn't do in 2021, but they won only one one more game than they had the year before. Their Pythagorean record was not as strong as it had been, and they were a pretty popular pick to win the division and maybe advance deep into the playoffs among supposed experts such as Ben Lindbergh. And I won't ask what went wrong, but what went less right than expected? Yeah, I mean, it was such a strange season because it was hard to pinpoint why things weren't really taking off the way that we thought they would. I mean, you can point to some individual performances. Like you mentioned Vlad was the guy who said that quote. Um, And he was coming off that great MVP like 2021 season. And while his 2022 performance was really, really good, if you're just looking at like the numbers and, you know, basing his numbers on what is the major league average. He was well above average in a lot of ways, but it wasn't at that MVP level like we saw. So they didn't have him. And then, you know, a guy like Bo Bichette, he ended the season very, very strongly, but he had kind of an up and down year as well. And that was kind of like what was happening with the team with a few minor exceptions of some guys that were just very consistent throughout, like a guy like Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman were pretty good all throughout. But then you had like a Jose Brios who would have like one good start and then two bad starts and then three good starts and then one terrible start. So there was a lot of inconsistency, both from individuals and their performances, but also just the team as a whole. It was like they'd play great one week and then the next week they'd look like a completely different team. And at the midpoint of the season or just before, I guess, they fired their manager, you know, so they fired Charlie Montoyo. They brought in John Schneider, who had been the bench coach, and he took over. And that seemed to get things going a little bit, but they would still have these periods of inconsistency even in the second half. And so, yeah, it was hard to pinpoint it. Was it just like a growing pains thing? Was it sort of a lack of focus sometimes? That seems to be something that they've really honed in on this year. It's like they all know they're very talented. They all know they have like the pieces there to be a very good team. And so it seems to me this year they've come into the season with kind of an eye for all the details, the little things, being very deliberate with your work, paying attention to every little thing. And so, yeah, when you look back at last year, it kind of feels like just the fine tuning of it. Like it was just like things were a bit loose sometimes it felt like. And to go from, you know, a, a good team to a great team to a really championship caliber team, you have to make sure you're doing all the little things as right as possible as much of the time as possible. So while we're on the subject of Vlad, he just had to drop out of the WBC, unfortunately, because of a knee issue. Doesn't seem like it's a long-term concern, although please let us know if there is any long-term concern. But bigger picture about Vlad, as you alluded to in your last answer, there's some question about whether he is merely a good player or an incredible player, right? And the first half of 2021 was so otherworldly, turned him into a MVP runner-up. Second half of 2021, still strong. 
long, but 142 WRC plus, right? And then last season in the low 130s, again, very good. But first half of 2021, just put him in the Hall of Fame and declare him better than his dad right now. Man, over the last uh, season or season and a half or so, Good player, but given the base running and defensive limitations, etc., not the super duper star that he looked like he was turning into. So is he going to land in first half territory or second half territory? What's he going to be and what is he working on to try to get back to what he was at his best? I mean, yeah, that's the big question, right? It's like, who is the real Vlad? And it's probably somewhere in between all those points that you kind of mentioned, yeah, right? Usually like, is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, for Vlad, I can I can kind of understand. He spoke to us at the start of Blue Jays camp and just honestly talked about, which was like really honest of him, that he was feeling anxious last year and he was f- probably putting too much pressure on himself. I mean, you were coming off or he was coming off this amazing season. I think that there was while he understood like why he didn't win the MVP, of course you're disappointed when you're kind of right there with the best player in the league, but obviously you don't pitch, so you're not going to win that award in that year. But I mean, like any other year or any other scenario, like maybe Vlad would have won the MVP, you know, had Shohei Otani not been like, you know, this otherworldly, like athletic specimen of a person. So yeah, there was probably some pressure. He, he put some pressure on himself to match that, maybe even better it. There was also the pressure of the team wanting to be better than they were the previous year. They were so disappointed the way that 2021 had ended for them that I think the whole team was really, really like eager to just like prove that they could get into the postseason. And so there probably was some element of like, I don't know, like running before they could walk type of thing. And maybe even individually with Vlad, like he was getting ahead of himself a little bit too much. So for him, He's talked a little bit about just kind of pitch selection, not chasing as much. That was something that he struggled with last year that we hadn't really seen before. I mean, all the way coming up as a minor leaguer and as a top prospect, he was always very well known for his plate discipline. And it was kind of well known because it was like it was so in contrast to his father, who obviously was more prone to swing at a lot of different pitches, even if they were outside the zone, whereas Vlad Jr. was much more disciplined. And so last year, we saw him chasing quite a bit. And the way that pitchers were attacking him, they were just kind of exploiting that. And so I think he's coming into the season just really wanting to not try and hit that like four run home run when no one's on base type of thing. Like just if he has to take a walk, if pitchers aren't going to pitch to him, then take the walk and just be a lot more patient and kind of get back to those like fundamentals that made him such a great prospect and such a great player. You mentioned Bichette having a kind of up and down season. And when you look at his his line and his war in the aggregate, it looks like it was pretty similar to his 2021. But one place that really stands out as a difference is in the decline in his base running, which was superlative in 2021 and then far less successful in 2022, both in terms of his success rate and how Stacast rated his sprint speed. So does he have a, a theory of what went wrong with his base running in 2022? And have you seen steps to try to correct those issues in camp? I don't know about a theory in terms of, I mean, I would, I haven't spoken to him about that specifically. I would guess some of it was probably pitchers paying more attention to him because he, as you said, like prior years, he had been really good at stealing bases. And I think 
it was other teams kind of taking note of him on the basis, maybe, and they they hadn't in the past. And so maybe there has to now be an adjustment on Bichette and the Blue Jays side of things. Like, okay, they know we're going to be aggressive. Let's like play it this way. I would say that I've noticed in spring watching the games and also just hearing what the Blue Jays have said that they really want to take an aggressive approach to base running this year. And Bichette in particular said that he said not with like, not even with the rules in mind, I wanted to be more aggressive this year on the bases. And then now with the rules in mind, like with the bigger bases and all those things, there's obviously going to be opportunity to do that. And, you know, for him, hopefully he can be successful, but definitely in spring, you've seen him honestly, like he's been experimenting a lot. There was an, a day, a couple days ago where he did get picked off at first, but I think in spring, it's kind of like knowing, knowing the patterns of the new, like disengagements, I guess, with the pitchers kind of testing the waters a little bit, I guess is the way to put it is like, you have to kind of get a feel for these new rules, how they're going to play out. And so I have noticed that not just Bichette, but the Blue Jays in general have been kind of like looking a bit chaotic on the bases. I think there's some method to their madness, I guess, in that I think they're kind of testing the waters right now. They're seeing what they can do, what they can get away with, getting the rhythms of these new rules and how they can play with them to their advantage. But not just Bichette, but in general, I think you're going to see the Blue Jays try to be a lot more aggressive on the base pass this year. They did that a little bit when John Schneider took over last year, and I think they're going to take it to another level this year. So when we did the Diamondbacks preview, we talked about the big Varsho-Moreno-Guriel trade from the Diamondbacks perspective. So now we should address it from the Blue Jays perspective. So talking about another guy who can give you some speed on the bases and a lot of other qualities too. Tell us what made the Blue Jays want to make this deal, obviously dealing from a, a strength to shore up a weakness. But beyond that, what do they foresee from Varsho, who I guess sadly, but understandably, probably his catching career is uh, just about behind him at this point? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things why the Blue Jays were interested in that trade. I mean, one, you mentioned they were trading from, it was actually a trade where both teams were trading, trading yeah. from a position of strength where you saw the Diamondbacks, they had a lot of outfielders to spare, and the Blue Jays obviously had a catcher to spare. And so I think that from the perspective of, of the Blue Jays, moving Moreno made sense because the Blue Jays already had two kind of starting caliber catchers and Danny Jansen and Alejandro Kirk and the where the Blue Jays are in their kind of competitive window. Is there going to be a lot of opportunity to get Moreno the sort of reps that he needs to kind of learn the pitching staff? And like, he's a very talented baseball player, but catching in particular is that position where you just kind of need reps at the major league level to kind of get the game calling down pat. And so I think that from their point of view, he was... If you're going to trade from your area of strength, the catching point of view, like he was the one that could make some sense because they have their trust in Kirk and Jansen to kind of lead the pitching staff and, and do the job. And obviously they're both very talented as well. And so then when it came to Varsho, the Blue Jays put a huge emphasis, I think, this offseason on run prevention, you know, the fancy way that teams are now saying just like pitching and defense. <laughs> so obviously Varsho, he was one of the best, if not the best outfielder last year defensively. And I think the Blue Jays, like, you're just looking to get better. And there's a lot of ways you can get better and you can keep getting better offensively and score more runs and more runs and more runs. But 
at some point, you kind of also need to shore up other areas. And so I think defense and outfield de- defense in particular was just an area they really wanted to get better. Like they felt like, okay, that's that's where we can improve. That's where we can like, you know, raise the ceiling of this team a little bit. And so beside Kiermaier, uh, you have Varsho, and then you have George Springer that's moved to right field. And that's a really excellent outfield. I mean, it's basically three center fielders or three guys that naturally can play center field that are manning your outfield and another element of that is obviously the Blue Jays dimensions in their outfield is changing this mm-hmm. year with renovation so there's going to be different wall heights whereas previously people who that aren't familiar with the Rogers Center or haven't seen it much it was very just symmetrical right like it was very it was all the wall height was the same all across it was just a very kind of cookie cutter outfield pretty easy to navigate and so now they're changing it because they're renovating their stadium as a whole. And so there's going to be different unique angles. There's going to be like areas where the wall is kind of like jutting out because they've moved the bullpens up. They've raised the bullpens. So there's going to be kind of like different places where the ball can hit and take funny bounces and ricochet. And yeah, like I said, the wall heights are going up. So it's not going to be all the straight wall height all across it's going to be different so some are some areas are going to be higher some areas are going to be lower so there's just a lot of potential for like funny bounces now where there wasn't before and so I think the team in general wanted to improve their defense and their run prevention overall but I think the element of the changing outfield like you have to you have to think that they were considering that even if, even if they don't sort of say that outright and then the other element of our show is that he hits left-handed and the Blue Jays for all For all that they did well offensively the last number of years, maybe one of the shortcomings of the team was that they were too right-handed. And we saw that get exposed a little bit last year, notably in the playoffs, I think. And so adding that left-handed dynamic to their lineup, it just changes things up. And yeah, sure, they were a really, really good right-handed lineup. Like a lot of people will say that like Mm -hmm. about them, which is totally true. They were, but the way that the Blue Jays and like John Schneider in particular has kind of described it is like, well, if you're just if you're an opposing pitcher and you're just facing like straight right handed lineup, you kind of just get into a rhythm, I think, a little bit more easily and you can maybe like attack guys in a similar way. And so I think just like making the opposition think a little bit more, mixing in those left handed bats, which also includes now Brandon Belt as well as Kevin Kiermeyer. And so Varshall, I think, has a lot of power that he can that he can use and probably in Rogers Center in particular, some areas of the outfield are changing. Right center field is an area where it might benefit him. So I think there's a lot of reasons why he made a lot of sense. And of course, also he's still pretty young, right? So he's I think it's like at least three, if not four years of control left. So he should be kind of a building block for them, honestly. Yeah, and he's just so good in the outfield that he kind of played himself out of behind the plate, even though he was fine back there too. And it was a lot of fun to see him do both, just kind of an incredible uh, conversion to go from catcher to center field and then be an incredible center fielder. He didn't really even catch with the Diamondbacks down the stretch the last couple months of the season last year. Is there any scenario where he straps on the gear this season or would it take some sort of uh, injury or emergency situation? Sounds like he'll be an emergency catcher. Like, and the Blue Jays, like, you could see it. The Blue Jays have liked to use Kirk as a DH and while Jansen's catching. So if there was a scenario where, like, you know, there's a pinch run and you're taking Kirk out and then you have to, 
I don't know. I don't know if I'm describing yeah, it right. But yeah, anyway, baseball's best third catcher, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the scenario is that, like, yeah, you would maybe use him in an end of game situation where you were just using him for like an inning back there or something like that or if there was like a true emergency like two of them went down or like you just needed to have someone uh we were told earlier in camp that don't expect Varsho to like catch any spring training games or anything like that won't happen but you might see him one day in camp at their facility like strap on the equipment and just catch a few of the relievers just so he's sort of as familiar with them so if he does have to go into a, a late game situation that he has a general idea of like what they're throwing. But yeah, I think if there was any sort of like long running injury for any of the Blue Jays catchers, you'd see them call someone up. You mentioned that they've basically built an entire outfield out of center fielders, but two of those guys have some health questions, or at least they did last year. So what is the latest on both George Springer's, it was a bone chip, right? In his elbow or a bone spur. What is the latest on his recovery? And then also on Kiermaier and his hip issue. Yeah, they both have come into camp healthy and they've been playing and they've been playing pretty regularly in spring training games with basically no limitations. I mean, Brandon Belt is another guy that is coming off of a health issue with his knee and he has ramped up slower and he's been more sort of like deliberate with his slow moving ramp up, although I think he's nearing games now at this point. But yeah, George Springer talked to us again at the start of camp and just spoke about, you know, how good his arm felt. He didn't sort of go woe is me about last year. He was very obviously just professional about it, but he did say that like it it was not fun to play with an arm that's hurting and an elbow that's not working properly. So it was tough, I think, for him last year. Like it was you saw it on swings, you saw it on some plays where he's throwing and then he's kind of wincing or he's swinging and he's kind of wincing, whatever it was. It was a lot of pain and a lot of discomfort, I think, in that elbow. Obviously, it was something that he could play through for most of the time, but I think he's coming into the season really, really optimistic about how the arm feels. He's kind of been like full force ahead at the start of camp. And so there's basically been no limitations with him. And Kiermaier as well, like he's said a number of times he feels great there's been no limitations on him either I think he got into not their first spring training game but their second so like he was in there right early on so again like there doesn't seem to be any like slow ramp up with either of them but yeah I mean those those health questions will kind of linger all season just because of the history that those guys had but I mean the Blue Jays are obviously optimistic that they can have a healthy season one more question about the outfield dimension. So as you noted, supposedly, according to the Blue Jays, this is not going to change the offensive profile of the park, which is fairly neutral overall, a bit above average just for home runs. And it wasn't really made to change the offensive profile. It was uh, to be fan friendlier and bring some seats closer to the field and, and be facing the field. And also, as you said, introduce some character and less symmetry. But do you buy that there won't be any difference just in how the park plays? I, I know that they said they modeled it and they showed that having the fences be higher would uh, counteract bringing some of the fences in. I know Travis Sachik looked at this and concluded that he didn't think that that would be the case, that he thought that it would be offense friendlier. And I guess it'll take some time to find out. But what's your read on that? Yeah, I could kind of like see both. Like I could see the logic of like, yeah, okay, if you move some fences in, but you raise 
the height of some walls, then those two things can counteract each other. But I think it's maybe more so the specific areas where they've made the changes that I think will probably be a bit more inviting to a friendly offensive environment. Like, I don't know, like it's interesting because you look at center field and they're lowering the wall there right from 10 feet to eight feet. So in theory, that should make it easier to hit home runs to center field, a lower wall. But then you also have it easier to defend a little bit, I guess, that you can have some more home run grabs there, potentially, although like home run grabs are pretty rare. Um, you have to really have perfect timing on that. But you do have Kevin Kiermeyer out there. And he, Great, he, yeah. he knows how to do it. So yeah, if anyone can. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then, yeah, there's areas too, like I mentioned before, like the right center field is kind of a looks like it might be friendly to some left handed hitters um uh, blue jays have a couple that can probably hit the ball pretty far of our shows one brandon belt's another and so i can kind of see where the blue jays are coming from in the sense of they believe it will be neutral but i think it we have to kind of wait and see it play because i can kind of see like how overall They've made the changes to kind of remain neutral, but there might be certain areas where guys can just start aiming there maybe, or like, I don't know, it maybe will just become a park where it's like, it's known to hit in these areas if you want it to go out a little bit more, whereas before it was kind of like the same all over. So some of the potential beneficiaries of those changes, assuming they do end up playing neutral from an offensive perspective, lie in the rotation. And what an interesting collection of seasons the Blue Jays had in the rotation last year. You had guys like Manoa and Gaussman who had really great seasons. And then you mentioned Barrios, who was really up and down a, a sharp decline from the pitcher who they had acquired. They've made some changes there this offseason. They brought in Chris Bassett. But I, I want to start with the guys who have struggled a bit. So Barrios and Kikuchi, how do you account for the the decline that we saw in Barrios? I know you said that he had good starts sprinkled in among his bad ones, but he just seemed to to really struggle last year. And then, you know, is there any hope at this point that Kikuchi is going to salvage something like what the Mariners expected they'd see from him when he came over from Japan? Yeah, so on Brios, it's interesting. Like, it was such a strange season to watch, and it was hard to sort of pinpoint what was happening. And I think to some extent, even the Blue Jays were a bit like boggled by, like, why is this happening? Because on the surface, like, there wasn't anything, there wasn't like a red flag or anything. Like, it wasn't like his velocity was like way down or uh, there was something very obvious. I think a lot of it had to do with fastball location. You know, he talked to us, Brios, I mean, he talked to us earlier in camp and it was like, it wasn't that he wasn't throwing strikes. It was like he was throwing good strikes for hitters and not good strikes for pitchers, basically. So it's like, it's not a competitive pitch. It's maybe it's too much in the hitter where the hitter wants to see the ball. And so it's not like a a command thing for him. It's just locating better in the zone, you know, hitting his spots in the zone a lot better. And there was other mechanical things he talked about. And some of it came down to like, you know, how he's going to be on the mound. I think he wants to be more explosive on the mound. He talked a little bit about his release point last year, kind of struggling with that. Whereas like on all his pitches, he was having like a d different release point. And so he, some of the mechanical changes that he's putting in this year is sort of to kind of make sure that he's releasing the ball at the same point on all his pitches, which he thinks will help him as well. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's the easiest thing, though, is to say, like, it's going to come down to, like, fastball location for him. It's locating that fastball 
and trying to avoid some of those really hard hit balls, which I think got him a lot last year. Home runs were a problem for him as well. But there's definitely optimism around him. I mean, he's been one of the most durable pitchers for all the struggles that he had last year. I think he made all his starts. So that was something. So I think it'll be interesting to see like how Chris Bassett just being there helps Brios because it's like maybe last year there was a lot on Brios. I mean, he just signed the huge contract with the Blue Jays. And I think he came in, he was named the opening day starter and that start went south very quickly. And I don't know. I just, I wonder how all that was like swirling around in the mind. And so I maybe like with a guy like Chris Batten's Bassett comes in and he's kind of a very steady number three. And then you really already had Kevin Gosman and, and Alec Manoa kind of emerge as your number one and two. So maybe Brios can kind of fly under the radar a little bit more this year. And then Kikuchi, he's looked great in spring. I'll say that. He's looked really good. He's looked really confident. It's interesting. You talk about all these rule changes. With Kikuchi, the Blue Jersey are really optimistic that the pitch clock is actually going to help him. Maybe there was a little bit of overthinking on the mound a little bit with Kikuchi, especially when things kind of went south. And maybe there's a little bit too much thinking about what you did the last pitch and all that kind of stuff where it's like now with the pitch clock, you just got to move on very quickly. You don't really have time to sort of like go over what you just did. You got to like move on, throw your next pitch. And so there's some optimism with him this season that that's going to help him just kind of like lock in, throw his pitches, not think about the last one, think about the next one, just go, go, go. So yeah. And then he's he's been working on some like two new breaking pitches. One's kind of a, like a, he calls it a curveball, but it's more like a slurve. And then there's another breaking ball that's kind of more like a cutter-like pitch. So I think again, like not to repeat myself, but for Kikuchi, it's all about kind of fastball command too. And and slightly different than Brios, whereas Brios, it's like just getting it in better spots in the zone. Kikuchi has got to start with getting it in the zone and then like getting it in good spots as well. And then if there should be proved to be an issue there. The Blue Jays do have a couple of really intriguing pitching prospects. I think one of whom has really rocketed up our rankings here at Fangraphs and has garnered great attention has been Ricky Tiedemann. Do you think that Blue Jays fans might see him at some point this year? And if not, who amongst that sort of AAA upper minor set do you think would be next in line to take starts at the big league level? Yeah, Ricky Tiedemann has been like the name of camp. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's kind of been the guy that, understandably so, I mean, he's got great stuff. He's a young, dynamic player. And, you know, it's always, I think, pitching prospects in general, like kind of capture the imagination for a lot of fans. And so I think it's possible we see him. I would be surprised if it happened before the second half. Um, yeah. I think it's more of a second half type of thing. I mean, we have to remember, he's only 20 years old. Last year was his first pro season. And he climbed three levels and got all the way to double a um so he has not pitched above double a i guess the decision now for the blue jays is even like do you start him at double a very very briefly maybe and then move him up to triple a or do you just start him at triple a i'm sure we'll get an answer that to that soon but yeah i would think a second half sort of debut for him would be I don't know, I want to say likely, but I'll say possible for sure. It depends on like the health too. Like if they're Blue Jays, like I remember in 2021, now it's a different situation because Alec Manoa was older. He was a college pitcher um, right. and all that. But I mean, the Blue Jays were in a situation where they needed a starter and they called him up. And he had only, I think he only had like four or five starts in AAA at that point. And he had a great debut and he has not looked back since he's been, you know, he's been solid basically since his debut it's kind of remarkable honestly the strides that Manoa has made but um back to your question the Blue Jays have Mitch White who's maybe like a guy that 
doesn't get mentioned and he hasn't been with them a long time. He obviously came last year in the trade deadline, but he's kind of like the new Ross Stripling maybe where he could start the season. I mean, he's, I know he's a little bit behind because he was dealing with a shoulder impingement, but in theory, when he's sort of ready to go and when he's healthy, he can be a swing man for them. He can pitch out of the bullpen and like be their long guy. Um, He can also slide into the rotation. He could be used in like a piggyback sort of situation. So if you, you know, we're just trying to get a, I don't know, four innings out of Kikuchi or two times through the order from Kikuchi. And then you brought in like a guy like Mitch White to pitch a couple innings and then you go to the rest of your bullpen. So Mitch White's a guy that could be called upon. The Blue Jays have Zach Thompson they got from a trade with the Pirates. So he's another guy that's like could be, I don't know, that like sixth, seventh type of starter that you call upon. Um, there's Drew Hutchison, like blast from the past for the Blue Jays. Um, <laughs> he's been pitching, making starts in camp. And I think he'll probably be one of those like veteran spot start guys. So like when they need, when they need someone, he might be called upon too. And then the bullpen was sort of middle of the pack last season for the full season, at least according to fan war, which was an improvement over the previous year when it was a weakness. And it's mostly the same group of guys that was there at the end of last season, with the exception of Eric Swanson, who came over from Seattle in the Teoscar Hernandez trade, and then potentially Chad Green and his ultra complicated contract. So what are the expectations for the relievers this season? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's probably, I see the bullpen as pretty similar to last year as well. Like, I think that the way the Blue Jays are built, like, it's probably still a team that's going to be relying on offense. And again, like the defense, I think the thing with their bullpen is that there still is probably a lot, not like, there's still like enough, I guess, pitching to contact in there. There's more swing and miss than there was last year with Eric Swanson, obviously, maybe eventually Chad Green. And some other guys mixed in, but I think with the outfield defense they're going to have, like maybe they're a little bit more comfortable with their bullpen, improving that defense. But yeah, I mean, I, I kind of see them similar. Like uh, it's hard to know with bullpens. Like you look yeah. at last year and it's like, well, the Mariners and they're all the same guys, but it's like they could have a completely different season <laughs> with their bullpen. Like you never know. So I think the Blue Jays have some really solid pieces there. Like I think Jordan Romano's really blossomed into an excellent closer. He's very reliable. You have Jimmy Garcia, who's looked really good in camp. I think he's leaving for the WBC here and he's looked good. I think Eric Swanson will actually be a good good ad for the Blue Jays. I think it's a different look. I guess that's the one thing about the Blue Jays bullpen that mm, I don't know if it's totally unique to them, but one of the things they've talked about is how they have different looks so you have like a sidearm or like Simber you have a guy like Trevor Richards who's got like a change up that he uses Mesa's like their lefty sinker baller so they've got like and then like obviously Eric Swanson with the splitter which is like not something you see a ton of so I think that that's maybe the strength or they're hoping that's the strength of their bullpen that yeah sure maybe they don't have a bunch of fire throwers in there but they do have a lot of guys that look different that could keep batters on their toes a little bit, mix things up. Um, And so I think they're hoping that they can use that to their advantage. Blue Jays made another addition away from the field and very recently when they hired James Click, who was the former GM of the Astros. And maybe we can start by having you help us understand what a vice president of baseball strategy does. (laughs) What is Click's role with the team going to be? And do you anticipate that this is a sort of one-year stopover for him as he pursues other GM opportunities later? Or do you think that he might have a longer tenure with the team? I mean, I think this the title is vague for a reason, so that he <laughs> so that he can kind of just go where 
he can best be used, where he can help. So I think it's just like he can basically touch any part of the organization that he wants if he thinks he can help. Or I think it's a lot about him going into the situations. And since he's been with other teams, especially recently and successful teams, especially recently, like he can kind of be almost like an outside observer who's now inside and kind of look at their processes and say, you know, what he thinks is working, what he thinks is not working or what they could do better or ideas that he has or things like that. And so it's kind of a cool role to come in and and sort of be an outsider. But now you're an insider, I think. So I think they're going to use his expertise in that way. And yeah, it sounds like he'll be helping in all regards, like whether it's just across baseball ops, across professional baseball, amateur baseball. Like I don't think he's going to have many restrictions. I think wherever he thinks he can help or wherever they they think he can help, they're going to let him. And in terms of uh, whether it's like a stopover or not, I mean, it's hard to say. I have not met him. I have not talked to him yet. So I don't totally, and not that he would probably tell me that, um, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe he doesn't know yet, right? So, but it's interesting. Like we've seen this in the past. I mean, I know a lot of people kind of cited Ben Sherrington a few times in kind of a similar way that he joined the Blue Jays after being a GM and he was with the Blue Jays a few years. He really was kind of in charge of player development, which I know is, you know, a passion for him. And then he worked for the Blue Jays for a handful of years and then now obviously is with the Pirates as the GM. And so, yeah, maybe there's a similar path that Click could take where it's like you spend some years with the Blue Jays, you really help the organization in any way that you can. But then I'm sure the Blue Jays are not going to stand in his way if if another opportunity comes along. But it's you know it's it's not a bad place, and maybe it's I don't know. Again, I haven't talked to him, but like maybe it's nice. I'm sure that being a GM is a lot of pressure. Probably being a GM of the Astros is a lot of pressure as well. Maybe it's nice to have a, a year to stop over where maybe you're not in charge of everything. You're just kind of. I don't know, getting to do maybe the fun parts of what an executive is, which is like getting to help and brainstorming ideas and putting ideas in place. Like I would think that that would be enjoyable if you're a person like him. And so, yeah, I think it's actually a really creative hire for the Blue Jays. Yeah, I guess another Blue Jays related comp would be Alex Anthopoulos leaving Toronto and going to the Dodgers for a couple of years before he wound up with Atlanta. So our last uh, standard closing question here is basically how should the Blue Jays define success this season? And that could be uh, specific players making progress or something on the farm system, or it could just be the results of the big league team. So when we look back how will we gauge whether this season was the movie or the trailer or, or whether we can just stop and drop that analogy forever? I know. Well, Vlad very smartly did not give us a, a sequel to that quote this year. Was he asked for another, uh, for a follow-up on that? Yeah. Someone someone asked, like, you said this last year. What are you going to uh-huh. say this year? And he was like, I'm not saying anything. Smart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, to answer your question, I'll say two things. I think it's success for this team might be they might view it as winning the division I've heard that mentioned a few times the Blue Jays this year like I think they are a lot more focused on like I said doing the little things right it's it's just it's not what was that bad analogy I tried to use and I'm trying to use again but it's like not running before you can walk like I think it's very (laughs) much just trying to take it a game at a time do the little things right pay attention to details like don't hand games to other teams with your mistakes and obviously mistakes are going to happen, but, you know, just try to do everything you can to win the game and, and all those little things will 
won't matter. But I think for the Blue Jays this year, winning the division is a big one. I think the team is really keen to to win the division, to compete with the Yankees, the other favorites in the American League East. And I think it's just like the division. I think they looked at what happened in the wild card series to them last year. And as as talented as a team they were, like the wild card series is always going to be a toss up, right? Like you you feel a lot better if you're a division winning team and you go straight through. And so I think winning the division to them is going to be success this year. And I'll add to that and say I think it's also winning a playoff round. You know they've gotten close to the playoffs and they've gotten into the playoffs. They haven't won a round yet. And in fact, this team, if you're going to go back to like 2020 when they made the expanded playoffs um, in the pandemic year. They were also swept. So this group of guys, you know, Vlad, Bo, that core, they haven't won a playoff game yet. And so I think that's step one is like winning a playoff game, but also I think winning a round, advancing, showing some serious progress from what they were last year, I think is how you're going to define success. I'm sure the answer to this is no, because I know you have to stay at the hotel in order to eat there, but I don't suppose uh, you got to try the fabled (laughs) chicken tenders at the Toronto Ritz-Carlton that uh, didn't actually convince Brandon Belt to sign with the Blue Jays, but it was fun to pretend for a little while that it did. Well, here's the thing. I don't eat meat, so... Oh, okay. (laughs) So even if I could, I would never order these chicken tenders. Maybe I should ask if they have that, like, chicken chicken lists, like chicken tenders. There's a lot of um, plant-based meat substitutes now, and the Ritz-Carlton might have it, so I could ask if they have a meatless version of it. Yeah. And then another silly one, I I noticed that your Twitter bio says, if I've been to a ballpark, I've probably been lost inside it too. And I have certainly had that experience, especially (laughs) if you're trying to go to the clubhouse at a ballpark where you haven't been a lot before, because most people in the ballpark are not going to the clubhouse and the few who are typically know where it is. And they're not going to have like signs everywhere saying this way is the clubhouse. This is where the players are. Come hang out. (laughs) So I have struggled with that myself. And uh, you never want to look like a a rookie and uh, ask for directions, but sometimes you have to. So what is the most difficult ballpark to navigate in your experience? And, and have you developed any strategies for not getting lost in them? Uh, well, I remember the one time I did get locked inside of Angel Stadium once. And <laughs> that one, <laughs> there was luckily like a service, like it's a like a after hours um like caretaker someone working and they like found me and they were able to like direct me out but how did that happen were you just there till the press box closed or yeah i was there like the last one and i'd never been there before (laughs) and so i just like had no idea how to get out and that one i always have trouble with the rays uh like tropicana field even though i've been there like a number of times once i get in i'm okay but i i always Cause it's just like, and I should know, cause I work in a dome as well. But like, right. for some reason, I always get mixed up where the press box entrance is, and cause mm. like Tropicana is just like this rounded building. Like I'm always like, do I go this way, or this way? And I always <laughs> pick the wrong way. It's always yeah, like, well, you'll get there eventually. I guess exactly, but. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I don't know. Like my thing is that I always early on, I just have never been a person with a great sense of direction and I'm usually so like focused on finding the place I need to find that I don't like take like mental notes of like which way I've come so then I turn around and I'm like wait how do I even get back so I've done a better job now of just taking mental notes of like okay I passed this sign the sign says this okay now I pass this and so I like know how to get back places but 
Yeah, I remember being very confused by Angel Stadium. So I'll go with that one as the most confused. <laughs> it's, it's the one that I really almost got locked in. So, <laughs> All right. Well, assuming that she doesn't get trapped in Angel Stadium or anywhere else, <laughs> you can follow Caitlin's coverage of the Blue Jays at The Athletic and on Twitter also at Caitlin C. McGrath. Thank you very much, Caitlin. Thank you. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Amy Rogers of MLB.com to discuss the Kansas City Royals. All right, we are back, and we are joined now by Annie Rogers, who covers the Kansas City Royals for MLB.com. Hello, Annie. Hey, how's it going? Going okay. And we want to know how things are going for the Royals, which is still sort of in question here. We don't know when the Royals' results will be different and improved, though I'm sure we will discuss that. But it seems from afar that they are already a different team from a process perspective to invoke an old Dayton Moore buzzword. Mike Matheny's out. Matt Quattraro's in, and with him, a whole host of seemingly new school coaches instead of the Cal Eldred old guards. So how much did the Royals need to modernize? How much can a team modernize in the course of a single offseason? What differences have you observed this spring compared to last spring? Yeah, that's that's a big question, right? Is how much is this change going to help on the field? But just from a process standpoint, um, it's completely different. Uh, the the vibe around camp is is very different. Thanks to manager Matt Quattraro, it's the players' clubhouse kind of kind of vibe uh, with him from Tampa, along with Q. He brought over bench coach Paul Hoover from Tampa, so um, there's a lot of new ideas from the catching standpoint. Uh, that, that the Royals are hoping the pitchers will take. And then the entire pitching department is, is pretty new, uh, at the big league level. Brian Sweeney came over from Cleveland. He's the pitching coach. The assistant pitching coach is Zach Bove, who came over from the Twins minor league side. And then the bullpen coach is Mitch Stetter, who was a Royals coach in, in the minor leagues, focused a lot on player development, kind of that, I guess you could say, bridge between research and development and the players. He worked with a lot of lower level pitchers. Um, so he's the bullpen coach now, um, has a lot of familiarity with a lot of these young guys up here. So it's it's very different. What I'm hearing is different. What I'm seeing is different. And uh, like I said at the beginning, we'll see how much that changes on the field this year. I guess it's good that Matt Quattraro goes by Q because I've seen a number of baseball writers talk about how it's either hard to say Quattraro or spell Quattraro. <laughs> I don't know if you have found that to be a difficulty at all. And I don't know if that's why he goes by Q, but that's convenient. I just say, yeah, I just say Q. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask about the pitching because when we last thought that the Royals might be ready to take a step forward as an organization, a lot of that was being driven by this, you know, group of, at the time, young former college pitchers who seemed like they had really high floors and might be able to move the team forward in the division. And all of those guys have struggled to varying degrees as their careers have progressed. So what are you seeing in terms of differences for how they're actually trying to implement, you know, pitch design and help these guys to maybe right the ship and be the, you know, the guys we thought they would be when they were prospects? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it has to do with new ideas uh, that these new coaches are bringing, um, a willingness to to use uh, the data and the technology, the resources that they have at their fingertips, and bring it to the players in a way that the players want and understand, have an individual individualized plan for each guy uh, to help them take the next step. This isn't a cookie cutter approach. Uh, this is this is what each guy needs, and what and they're part of the conversation uh, this off season. What the pitching coaches did was visit or talk to every single pitcher and say, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What are you working on? And then they kind of married their ideas together uh, to create a plan for spring training. And what I've heard from a lot of pitchers and seen is almost every single one of them has a new pitch. They're working on something when it comes to pitch grips, pitch design. That's Zach Bove's specialty. And they want to kind of take their take the next step, and that's how they think they're going to do it. So I think it's just a lot of new ideas and a lot of new resources that they that they can use and are encouraged to use that I think is the biggest difference. And what about at the front office level, which uh, obviously has to work closely with the field staff and hired the field staff, so you would think that they would be in sync. But moving on from Dayton Moore after his extremely long tenure, A, what was it that finally did him in? Was it just the lack of results at the big league level or was it a perception that the Royals had fallen behind in some ways? And then making the change to J.J. Piccolo, who was Moore's right-hand man for many years, how big of a philosophical shift does that represent? Yeah, I, I think, you know, people see JJ in charge and they may think, well, it's just Dayton Moore, you know, number two, right? But he is different. He thinks about the game in a different way. He utilizes his resources as a, in a different way as well. Uh, what Dayton did in Kansas City is was incredible. It should not be forgotten. It's, you know, those banners will always hang at Kauffman Stadium. But I think owner John Sherman, what he wanted was was something new, something different. And um, I just remember this stuck out so much at, at this press conference last September when Sherman announced JJ as, as the new general manager. Um, Sherman said, we have all the data. We just need to figure out how to use it in a way that helps this team take the next step forward. So they, they feel good about what they have in place. They just had to, they want to figure out how to take the next step using that data, that technology, the, the analytics and throughout the entire organization, not just at the big league level. And I think what you're seeing this spring is a lot more collaboration between different departments, research and development, strength and conditioning, nutrition, all these departments are now coming together to create plans for players and the players are responding to it really well. One of the guys who I imagine they hope will help to shepherd in the new era of Royals baseball is Bobby Witt Jr., who had like a perfectly good and respectable uh, rookie campaign. What improvements does he want to make this year, and you know how do you think he might improve at least at the plate? Because again, it wasn't it wasn't a bad year, but he posted a 99 WRC plus, even though he did hit 20 home runs. So what what adjustments do you expect to see from him this season? Yeah, I think he's has a better understanding of what he wants to do at the plate now. I think the game maybe sped up on him a little bit, uh, both at the plate and in the field last year. Uh, you saw him make a lot of errors at shortstop um, and third base. This year, they're having him solely focused on shortstop. He is their starting shortstop, you know, and, and, until he shows differently. But they're going to give him a, a real chance to play that position every day. I think he knows what his body needs uh, from a routine standpoint every day. And I think he's just going to be chasing that consistency now. Um, we saw flashes of it, obviously, 
you mentioned the 20 home runs, uh, but a lot of the, you know, he didn't walk probably as much as he, he wanted to. He didn't get on base. And, and obviously when he gets on base, he can be dynamic for the Royals on the bases with, with his speed. So I think that's what you're looking for with him is just the consistency in his approach. And then hopefully let that kind of uh, take off for him and help him in the field as well. Yeah, it was an interesting monthly progression because, of course, he started extremely slow and then was on a torrid stretch for a while and and picked up hit really well May, June, July, and then kind of deflated a little bit in August and September, October, last couple months of the season. I don't know if there was a fatigue issue or or the league caught up or what else was going on. But defensively, I I guess that stands out just because of the metrics, basically whatever metric you look at, he was uh, well, well below average, I guess would be almost a charitable way to put it and and split time between short and third and perhaps that affected him didn't really uh, grade out that well at either position but then as you said a, a vote of confidence and they handed him that position and they traded Alberto Mondesi so what kind of growth do they think he can make defensively I mean what does he need to work on there and if he doesn't show progress either this season or long term then what would be the fallback plan there how does uh, Nicky Lopez or or others uh, fit into the picture yeah, I think what happened last year is uh Bobby is such an incredible athlete that he almost needs to he he almost goes too fast um when he is out there in the field. He's he can make uh really spectacular plays, but sometimes the ball can you know speed up on him just because he is going it goes too fast. So I think what the Royals did this offseason, they hired uh, infield coach Jose, Jose Alguacil. Uh, he was, he's a longtime coach in the Giants organization, uh, spent last year with the Nationals, pretty well respected around the game for um, his coaching infielders, gold glove guys, you know, all over the place. And he's really working with, with Bobby and a lot of these young, young players on their first step, getting them ready to, to come out, let the ball come to them rather than rushing through, you know, those routine plays. So that's a little bit, I think, what happened with Bobby last year. And if that continues into this year, uh, I'm not sure, you know, how long they'll let him, uh, if, if he is, if he is struggling, I, I am curious to see how long they'll let him go at shortstop. And then they'll obviously have to, to make a change if, if something goes awry. That's why they kept hold of Nicky Lopez. He's a really versatile guy, really good defender, and he can step in at shortstop if needed. They also have Michael Garcia waiting in the wings as well. If you want to get into prospect talk, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's kind of the plan. Well, if Witt at times struggled at the plate last year, one guy who didn't, at least in his brief, well, I guess it wasn't so brief, but limited cameo was Vinny Pasquatino. I don't know that I've ever seen baseball Twitter react to a guy quite like this. <laughs> um, he certainly gives a good quote. Obviously, the defense isn't going to be as big a part of his game at first base, but is there anywhere for him to go at the plate, or are they just hoping for him to be steady Eddie and to continue the great performance he had last year in 72? two games yeah um he's he's a joy to cover uh, i just have to say that <laughs> he's really funny and uh, i always joke like he writes my stories for me because he's such a great quote um and then he's also really good he's a very good hitter and i think that's what the royals are are looking for i mean he can always take a step forward uh be more consistent at the plate but um you're looking at a guy who's going to hit a, a lot of home runs in the major leagues and who knows what will happen now with the shift restrictions. He was shifted a lot and he can hit the ball really hard. So we'll see how many hits he can get now with the shift restrictions. But I think what he showed last year is exactly what the Royals want. Um, and if he can put that together over a full season, you're looking at a really special hitter. 
The Royals led the majors by far in plate appearances by rookies, something like 2,600 of them. And we've talked about Witt and Pasquantino, and then there's Melendez and Isbell and Rivera and Massey and Eaton and on and on and on. So do they feel like they kind of have their position playing core in that group? I mean, do they feel like anyone other than Witt has sort of a superstar potential in this core, or is it still about prospects coming along? I, I guess, you know, was uh, last year sort of our introduction to the next decade of the Royals hitters, or are they still sort of sifting through the mix there? Yeah, I think uh, you're lo- definitely looking at the core with Bobby Witt, Vinny Pasquantino, MJ Melendez. Um, we're going to see a lot of Kyle Isbell this year in center field. That's a huge question mark uh, for the Royals moving forward. If we have this conversation next year, we can maybe put him in that conversation or maybe not. I think another guy that they want to find out a lot about this year is Nick Lofton. He's going to be in AAA to start the year. One of their top prospects, uh, really steady, versatile guy. So he, he could be part of this conversation as well. But as far as the position players, this, I mean, this is it. This is your, last year was our introduction to uh, what they hope can be a, a really good core of hitters that will take them to, you know, the next level. And part of why we're going to see Isbell in center, at least for a while, is that Drew Waters is injured. What is the latest on him? What's the timeline for him potentially returning? Yeah, it was um, six weeks at the at the start of spring, which was about three weeks ago. Uh, so you're looking at another three weeks of him being sidelined from baseball activity, and then uh, it, it's just a matter of him ramping up, and going through you know his own spring training at at that point. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he missed the first month of the season, but hopefully he can get this behind him. With that oblique strain, can be really tricky. Uh, so yeah. they want to make mm-hmm. sure that it's completely behind him before he steps out onto that field in Kansas City. And then, you know, he's part of that group, too. I think uh, we're going to see a lot of him once he gets healthy uh, in center field and right field. And can he be part of this group that we're talking about? Uh, That's a major question for the Royals to answer this year. So even though the Royals had that great crop of position players coming along last year, it is sort of the pitching, the young pitching that has been looked on as uh, potentially leading to good things for them. And really, other than Brady Singer, you couldn't say that anyone has broken out of that group yet. And so, as you noted, just different approach this year. I think that's why there was a lot of frustration among fans about Cal Eldred and uh, perceptions that perhaps uh, he and the Royals front office were not supplying those young pitchers with the help that they needed. So you said that uh, everyone seems to have a new pitch this spring. I I saw that Daniel Lynch uh, seems to have a new and improved slider. What other new additions or or changes have you seen this spring? And who are the leading candidates to really take a step forward on the staff? Yeah, I think Daniel Lynch is, you mentioned him, you know, he's working on his new slider. He's working on a curveball. I think he is this, he can be really good. He's very talented and the Royals really need him to take a step forward as well. So that's, I've heard a lot about how he has, he can be the best of the bunch here still. Um, it's just a matter of him taking the step forward and, and bringing that consistency like Brady Singer saw last year. Um, so that'll be something I'm looking forward to seeing. And then it's kind of weird. I don't know if, if Brad Keller is a part of this young group, but he is like in that age, age bracket, I guess you could say. Um, but he is another guy who is just, is a, is a spring standout. Um, he's got a new curveball that he's throwing a lot. He went to driveline this offseason and, and worked with those guys on, on that pitch design. This is a pitch that he tried to bring in in 2020. And then obviously COVID happened and sidelined in a little bit. And he had a really great year that year. So he didn't need the curveball. And then the next two seasons, um, obviously haven't gone the way that he wanted to. So 
the Royals coaches were all in on him bringing a curveball to the mix, and it's it's looked really good uh, so far um, this spring. So we'll see how that helps him moving forward. And I think the third guy is, is Chris Bubich. He's dealing with a little bit of shoulder soreness, so he's a little bit delayed in his throwing progression this spring. But he's going to throw his slider a lot more this year. He tried to do that last year. Didn't work out the way he wanted it to, but he really needs that pitch to be unpredictable and, and kind of open up the zone a little bit more. Uh, against hitters. Um, so th- those are th- three guys that I think, you know, these new pitches could really help them take that next step. The Royals weren't very active this offseason when it came to making additions. I don't think they brought in a single non-pitcher on a major league contract unless I'm missing someone. Of course, as we just mentioned, they added a whole lot of position players internally last year. So they made some trades for relievers. And then I think the only free agents they signed to big league deals were veteran pitchers who ranged from sort of uh, yawn to really that guy. Why? Where does he fit in? <laughs> Which uh, maybe you could say about a role as Chapman, and then there's uh, Jordan Lyles, Ryan Yarbrough. So was it just a matter of uh, they didn't really think they were in a position to add this year, or they felt like their internal options uh, were as as good as they could do, and they're just sort of banking on the guys they already had getting better? I mean, what was the, the strategy behind bringing in some of the, the older veteran guys that they added to the mix? Yeah, I think two things. One, the Royals weren't in a spot this year. They they knew that, you know, this wasn't the season to go all in as far as acquisitions outside of the organization. Two, they are still high on their internal talent and they really do want to see this question that I I've been asking is how much can coaching change a player's a player's season. They really want to see what this new staff does uh in regard to taking the pitching to the next level. And then as, as far as the guys they did bring in, it is a lot of veteran veteran guys, veteran pitchers. And I think a lot of it was about innings. Jordan Lyles comes to mind when, it, when you talk about innings. They want him to be able to be a workhorse for their rotation, um, kind of like Zach Greinke was last year and obviously will want to do again this year. Um, so that's, that's the biggest thing. And creating a little bit more competition in camp as well, uh, I, I don't think is a bad thing. We're looking at a bunch of guys for basically two spots in the rotation. And I think with Q at the helm, we're going to see a lot of uh, a turnover on that roster throughout the year um, just to get to use really the whole 40 man and, and maximize the roster as much as they can. The Royals had one of the highest walk rates last year on the pitching side, which is uh, not great given that they also had the lowest strikeout rate, I think. So <laughs> it's uh, not the combination that you want. I guess uh, second lowest, uh, they were just ahead of the Rockies, which is something, I guess. So one strategy that they seem to be employing this spring, which has worked for other teams, including the Rays, uh, who seemed to really start it, and then the Orioles, at least at the beginning of last season, is just telling their pitchers to fire it in there basically and trust their stuff and not try to finesse things uh, that seems to have paid dividends elsewhere so what have you witnessed when it comes to instilling that approach in the staff at large and how much does that go against uh, their pre-existing strategies well the first thing i noticed uh when i got to camp this year was this t-shirt or i guess it's not a t-shirt it's a long sleeve dry fit shirt that some guys were wearing and it's gray and on the back it says raid the zone and I'm like, what? What is raid the zone? And so I started asking around, and, and it is their motto this year is throw strikes, fill up the zone, and that's what they want. They want to throw strikes. If you give up a hit, that's okay. You are in the zone. 
that's that's their biggest thing this year because like you said last year low strikeout rate high walk rate and that just can't happen so that's that's the biggest focus this year is filling up the zone and so far so good I mean I know it's spring training but it's been really impressive to see the intent behind a lot of these pitchers I mean they are they are throwing strikes uh, and it's really fun to see so that's their motto and then there's another shirt. The Royals are all about t-shirts. Um, <laughs> it's a catching shirt and it's, you know, all in. It, that's their motto is all in every pitch. And there's a big emphasis with Paul, with bench coach Paul Hoover, who's overseeing catching as well of um, the catchers helping out the pitchers by putting their glove. You know, they're not, we're not trying to be too fine here. Set up in the middle of the plate and let the movement work for each pitcher because these guys have a lot of movement on their pitches. And they think that by, you know, helping out, helping out these pitchers by setting up in the middle of the zone, they're not going to try to be too fine and then, you know, getting bad counts. And all of a sudden you're, you're it's, it's a mess of an at bat at that point. Yeah. So those are two, two mottos that I think the Royals are, are really preaching this year and we'll see how it turns out. But there is a huge emphasis on strike throwing and you're seeing it in spring games. Now it's a matter of seeing it in regular season games. I hope they still throw some outside pitches too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All in, be pretty predictable. Scouting report. Wise. I know. I I did. Uh, I was giving <laughs> Hoover some. Some uh, crap about that. I was like, oh, you just starting to go all in. And he, he just rolled his eyes at me. So, um, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> I did want to ask about the catchers and sort of what the balance you think is going to be between Melendez, Salvi, and I guess Freddie Furman, who's also on the 40 man. I mean, Perez is an elder statesman at this point. I think he's their oldest position player that we have projected to be on the opening day roster. So, I imagine that they want to try to keep him fresh. How do you think that it's going to shake out in terms of those three and how much time they're going to spend behind the plate? Yeah, um, Salvi's going to catch the majority of games still um, as long as he's healthy. And then you're going to see MJ Melendez in the corner outfield, probably left field, uh, like he did played last year on the days that Salvi's behind the plate. Couple couple days a week, uh, depending on the schedule, MJ will catch, be Salvi's backup catcher, and Salvi will DH or uh, he he won't want to take a day off, so he'll he'll definitely DH. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of the setup they have right now going into the season. That can change obviously based on injury. I'm really interested to see what the Royals do with Freddie Fermin. Do they have a third catcher on the roster as kind of a a backup guy? You know, in case the Royals get into a bind with MJ in the outfield, Salvi behind the plate, um, you know, if an injury happens in game or something like that. So last year they did carry a third catcher most of the time. I'm interested to see how it all shakes out. I think it'll depend a little bit on what their bench looks like. Uh, but Freddie's a really good catcher. I, I really enjoy watching him and he's got a ton of energy. So it'll be kind of interesting to see how that shakes out for them as we get closer to opening day. Now that pitchers can call their own pitches with pitch come, will a Royals catcher call a pitch for Zach Greinke this season? <laughs> they haven't yet so far in, in spring training games. So that is a great question. I think Zach really, really wants that to be implemented for the regular season. It makes so much sense uh, for, for a guy like him. And the catchers love it too, um, and he loves it. So it makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, it's a great question. If if he's allowed to have that pitch comm receiver or transmitter, I guess, on his belt or glove or whatever it is, um, yeah, I don't think he's going to let anybody call his pitches. <laughs> Royals are interesting because on the one hand, you know, the gap between them and say the Guardians and even the White Sox and Twins is pretty substantial, at least if you go by last year's record. But the Central does still feel relatively winnable, and I'm curious sort of how 
they view themselves within the context of the division and when they think they might be in a position to really start to challenge, if not for the AL Central crown, then for a wild card spot somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even this year, like, it just seems like for the Royals to be in the position they are, like, they're also in the best division too. Uh, when it comes to, there's not a clear cut winner. You know, I, I think the Twins are going to be good, and and the White Sox, you know, ha- have some pieces. So, and the Guardians, obviously from last year, but there's not someone who's by far and away going to, you know, take the division. Um, I do think the Royals are are looking at 2024, 2025 as as their years to kind of get back into that contention window. Anything can happen, obviously, but if the way that they the way they want it to play out, you know, take a good step forward this year uh, with the pitching, have the hitters adjust in their second second years for a lot of them, and then uh, start to bring in the pieces that really take them to that next step, that next uh, winning level in the next coming years. Where does the Royals ballpark search stand as it relates to public funding and, and sites? Yeah. And, and from your perspective, I, I guess, uh, how imperative is it that the Royals have a new ballpark? Because I know they're looking for a, a downtown site that would be closer to the city. But on the other hand, Kaufman has always been and, and remains beautiful and was mm-hmm. renovated in the, the not too distant past. So I assume Royals fans uh, would be sorry to see it go, even if they had a short commuter an easier commute so give us the pros and cons of the royals search for a new park and and is it largely motivated by the location or is it more about you know the real estate development and and how every team wants to make their complex into not just a ballpark but a way to make money in other ways too yeah, I think it's definitely both of those. So the Royals have a lot of questions to answer when it comes to this. Uh, if they want the stadium to be kind of on the ballot for voters in August, uh, there's there's a lot of questions to answer before then, a lot of information that they need to, to make public. Um, first of all is the location that they're looking at. I don't think that's too far off, uh, but they, it's definitely going to be downtown. Um, they've got about three or four locations that they've narrowed it down to that they, they want the ballpark and it's you know, the ballpark district, as they call it, to be downtown. They went on a, they called it a listening tour this off season. It was more a public presentation. They were given out, you know, giving information, taking questions about, about this process. So there's a lot of questions to be answered still. And I think, but one thing is clear, you know, the Royals want to go downtown. They view it as a much better investment than staying at Kauffman Stadium and renovating it, which is sad because Kauffman is awesome. Um, it's really pretty, but yeah. there is a commitment that I've heard is, is to bring a lot of the elements that people love about Kauffman Stadium to this downtown ballpark if, if it gets there. And, you know, we're looking at a couple of years down down the road still. I mean, 2027 is probably the, the earliest that the Royals can be playing in, in that new stadium as long as everything passes. But like I said, a lot of questions to be answered still by the team. So what are the, the biggest questions that the Royals really need to answer this season? Our, our closing question is always uh, what would constitute success for this team? And of course, uh, you could say everything possible goes right and no one gets hurt and they somehow win a wild card or something like that. But barring that, I guess, would be the absolute best case scenario. What would be the ways to gauge whether this season was a success, whether it's progress on the farm system or just sort of sorting out what they have among all the young hitters and pitchers they have on the roster right now? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of questions they, they want answered um, by the end of this year. One is, you know, which of the pitchers can take a step forward alongside Brady Singer, which of the young guys that is. And um, so how much can the staff help? How will that translate onto the field? That's a huge question, obviously. We're talking so much about the pitching this spring and, you know, even on this podcast, it's it's all about the pitching uh, this year. How can they be better and take a step forward in, in their futures in 2023? Uh, the other question I think as, as it relates to hitters is like we talked about in center field, you know, who's the center fielder of the future? Is it Kyle Isbell? Is it Drew Waters? Do the Royals need to go out and get someone, uh, to play center field, um, for their, you know, hopefully contending years? Can Bobby Witt Jr. play shortstop? Is he their starting shortstop of the future? Do they need to go through a position change? What happens there? So I think there's, and just, you know, with the young hitters in general, what can they do in their second year? Who are the who are the pieces that they need to bring in to um, you know stabilize that lineup that sort of thing? Uh, that those are the questions that they're they're you know try to answer in 2023. They've really stayed away from you know the win loss conversation. Uh, I don't know how many wins they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna have. You know it, it's certainly I don't think we can go out and say the Royals are gonna win the AL Central, but a step forward is is definitely needed. And uh, 2023 is the year that the Royals need to take that step. And if you can see a clearer picture for 2024 and 25 for their contending years, um, I think 2023 was a successful year. All right. Well, we'll find out whether it works out that way. You can read Annie's coverage of the Royals all season long at MLB.com. And you can find her on Twitter at Annie, A-N-N-E underscore Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S. Thanks very much, Annie. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so we are reconvening for our pass blast, and this comes from 1977, because this is episode 1977. It also comes from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. When he is not pass blasting, it's like, you know, when Batman is is not Batmaning, he's a, a millionaire playboy, Bruce Wayne. Well, when David Lewis is not pass blasting, he is uh, an architectural historian and, and researcher based in Boston. That's just his, his alter ego, basically, when he wants to blend in and not be a superhero for a little while. David writes, 1977, Angel has a masterpiece in five seasons. So this is near and dear to our hearts, as Roger Angel always is. In the opening line of his book, Five Seasons, Roger Angel writes, The five baseball seasons just passed are the most significant half decade in the history of the game. Released in 1977, the book details, as the title suggests, five seasons of Major League Baseball from 1972 through 1976. It was immediately praised, called a masterpiece by Peter Andrews of the Saturday Review. Andrews continues, Angel brings to his work the two indispensable qualities for top-flight baseball writing, a keenly analytical mind that can dissect the sport in all of its facets, as well as a passionate concern for the game itself and how it should be played. Five Seasons is a book brilliantly conceived and executed by turns. It is thoughtful, hysterically funny when Angel discusses all the bounces of which a horse hide is capable and, in the end, sad and properly angry when he contemplates the stupidities that have been forced on baseball by the people who run it. Today, Five Seasons is considered a classic. David continues, just as Peter Andrews predicted upon its release. Andrews concluded his review by suggesting Angel receive baseball's honor. He wrote, If I were the commissioner of baseball, I'd dust off a small niche at Cooperstown and reserve it for Roger Angel. He has crafted two flawless baseball masterpieces in a row, and that hasn't been done since Johnny Vandermeer pitched back-to-back no-hitters in 1938. 
I guess the the summer game preceded five seasons. So these are classics, of course. And I guess uh, he did get about as close as a writer can to yeah. the Hall of Fame, right? He he did get the award that uh, a baseball writer can get there. And I wonder how you think that thesis holds up where Angel said the five baseball seasons just passed are the most significant half decade in the history of the game because we can all fall prey to recency bias and and be prisoners of the moment. So he's writing in a book published in 1977 and he says, oh, 1972 to 76, uh, just the most significant half decade in the history of the game. And now we have almost 50 years more perspective. And and I'll just, I'll read you. I I picked out my copy here of Five Seasons Mm. from the bookshelf, which has a a nice, musty old book smell. (laughs) I put it up to my nose and and breathe deeply of the Roger Angel stench here. (laughs) I guess stench is probably the wrong word. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, we were were on a particular roller coaster ride. Yeah, we talked about some stenches last week. This is entirely different. How dare you bring that up in conversation yeah this in this context how dare you ben this is a sweet scent so angel wrote the five baseball seasons just passed are the most significant half decade in the history of the game on the field they were notable for remarkable individual feats by hank aaron lou brock and nolan ryan among others that eclipsed or threatened records previously considered entirely secure the long pennant races and the famous doings of the playoffs and the world series were dominated by two vivid and absolutely different champion clubs the oakland a's and the cincinnati reds and in 1975 we were given a world series between the reds and the boston red sox of unmatched intensity brilliance and pleasure as uh, roger angel's writing about it is a uh, agincourt and after is in this book as are some other classics These sporting events, however, were almost obscured by the turmoil and bitter public wrangling that have accompanied the business side of the game in the past Mm -hmm. few years, the strikes and lockouts and other labor skirmishings of the players and owners, the bartering of franchises, the adulteration of the game by sudden gate-enhancing innovations, the deadening influence of network television, the arrival of player free agency, the inflation of player salaries, and the purchase loyalties of most of the principals in the game have come as a shock to most of us, for we have begun to understand at last that baseball is most of all an enormous and cold-blooded corporate enterprise and as such is probably a much more revelatory and disturbing part of our national psyche than we had supposed like many fans i suspect i tried at first to ignore or make light of these distractions i continued to write mostly about baseball as i saw it played in spring training during the summer campaigns and in the noisy and cheerful Oktoberfests, and also to pursue my private discoveries of the beauties and complications of this old sport In the end, however, I had to think about the true meanings and ironies of contemporary big baseball because they had begun to intrude on my feelings about the game. And just skipping down to the last paragraph here, the game we may conclude is worth the candle. We have no other choice if we wish to hold on to this unique attachment, this particular patch of green. Only by looking at baseball entire, I believe, will we be able to fit it into our understanding of ourselves and our times. And only that clear view will allow us to go on watching the game and to take pleasure in its scarcely diminished splendors. As for me, I am still a fan, a companion to the game, and a grateful recipient of its good company. I mean, I think that you, like, I don't want to discount the feeling of being sort of jarred loose from your prior understanding of baseball. I don't think that that's unique to his era of the game. I think we Mm -hmm. all end up with some, I don't know, dropping of the naivete and the particular form that that takes varies generation to generation. And we, you know, are obviously building on prior changes to the economics and sort of 
social political atmosphere that baseball operates in when we're looking at the stuff that matters for our generation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like if you hadn't experienced free agency before, I bet you would feel pretty unmoored. You know, yeah. I don't you know, view it as a bad thing in the end, but I can understand it being disorienting if you've you've grown up with a game where that just wasn't really a part of, you know, a part of things. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that the sort of unique position he's attributing to that is one I'd agree with, but I get it being really tectonic at yeah. the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think even in retrospect, free agency, uh, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, about as big a shift yeah. as we've seen just to the economics of the game and right. player movement and and the union's uh, growth and strength and all of that. So that's, that's a pretty big change. Pretty big uh, there one. are definitely other half decades one could make a case for. Sure. I mean, I guess you could go back to the beginning and the Knickerbocker rules and Doc Adams and all of that, just sort of laying down the law and the rules of the game and right. deciding how baseball would actually be played, of course, without which we wouldn't have the rest of it. And I'm sure uh, Richard Hirschberger, our past pass blaster, could write in and, and tell us that this span of uh, five years in the 1870s or 80s or 90s, I mean, you know, when pitchers are allowed to start throwing overhand or whatever it is, like, you know, there were so many formative changes going on in those years or of course uh, integration right i was gonna say yeah or i don't know like the half decades late 50s early 60s where you had teams moving to the west coast and yeah. expansion and, yeah. and the season getting longer but i don't know like early 70s to mid 70s it's not bad i mean you got the dh in there too right and gosh a, a lot of other changes uh notable things happening on the field george steinbrenner buying the yankees and, and free agency is huge and and then, you know, you could look at uh, maybe the PD era and expansion yeah. during that time and maybe juiced ball going on at, at that point. Or it, there are so many eras that <laughs> yeah. produced pretty significant changes, but it, it doesn't look silly to look no. back now and say 72 to 76, like whenever free agency happens, uh, that has really put its stamp on all of the rest of baseball history. So yeah. it, it's certainly a defensible position. Yeah, I I don't think that I look at that and go, what are you talking about? Nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, great book, great read. Everyone yeah. should, should go check it out. I can't All believe right. you brought up sharding in the context of I mean, <laughs> I don't know where the word stench came from. I was searching for a smell word and I picked exactly the, the worst one. <sighs> <laughs> All right, I will give everyone the trivia answers now. I, I know you know the right. answers. Uh, Clearly. So you can continue to hold your peace. Thank you for for uh, not spoiling the suspense for everyone, but give everyone the answers here. So I will uh, give you the head-to-head record of the Royals and the Blue Jays, relying on the website StatMuse here. Kansas City Royals all-time 199 and 220 against the Blue Jays. Mm. I I guess I should have given it in the other order. 220 and 199, the Blue Jays over the Royals in the head-to-head matchup. The first players to play for both teams, this comes from frequent Stat Blast consultant Ryan Nelson, who's on Twitter at rsnelson23. The first pitcher to play for both teams was Tom Murphy, who played for the Royals in 72 and 76, and then for the Blue Jays from 77 to 79. Maybe that was the most significant half decade in history because Tom Murphy pitched for the Royals in Mm. 72 and 76. So that sort of sets things apart. The first batter to play for both of these franchises, John Mayberry, 
played for the Royals from 72 to 77, and then the Blue Jays from 78 to 82. And then the final trivia answer, the highest war hitter and pitcher, respectively, to play for these two teams. On the offensive side, I would not have guessed this, Jose Bautista, I completely forgot the Jose yeah. Bautista Royals era. Yeah, I can't believe you <laughs> forgot about that. I know. Those those amazing 13 games. Who could forget <laughs> <laughs> Jose Bautista playing 13 games yep. for the Kansas City Royals in 2004, the great 2004 Royals. And <laughs> Jose Bautista put up a 471 OPS in 26 plate appearances. For the 58 and 104 2004 Royals. It just somehow slipped my mind. But yeah, yeah, going by war, 35 war for Jose. He played for both teams. And then Benito Santiago, John Mayberry, again, Alex Rios and Whit Merrifield. And then the top pitchers. uh, This one was easier. This name actually did come to mind. David Cohn, of course, is the best uh, Royal and Blue Jay pitcher at almost 56 war, followed by Bud Black, Jeff Francis, Miguel Batista, Joaquim Soria, Octavio Dotel, Liam Hendricks. And I could go on, but I won't. So those are the trivia answers. Hope that was fun for everyone. I'm not a big trivia guy. Oh, really? No, not so much, but here I am being the quiz master. So this is is a new look for me. Quiz master. (laughs) All right. As mentioned, we will wrap up the week with the Rays and Pirates previews. But before then, we will talk to one Sam Miller and do a WBC preview as well with another guest. But now let me leave you with a message from past past blaster Richard Hirschberger, whom I invoked a little while ago and I brought up during the Royals preview, pitchers calling their own pitches with the Pitchcom device, which we talked about last week. And Richard wrote in in response to that to offer some historical perspective, as he often does. He said, you will be unsurprised to learn that this was a discussion baseball had back in the 1880s. Signals became necessary in the 1870s as pitchers began throwing effective curveballs. At first, the pitcher gave the signal, but this had the obvious flaw that the sign was easier to steal. So the responsibility gradually shifted to the catcher. I think it is more natural for the pitcher to make this call. There's a lot of path dependency for it to seem strange today. Had sign stealing never arisen, we would think the idea of the catcher calling pitches to be bizarre. If this shift becomes permanent, it will be one of the more interesting developments in the game. We will tell our grandkids that the catcher used to tell the pitcher what to throw, and the brats will suspect us of dementia. Here's a discussion from John Montgomery Ward's 1888 book, Baseball, two words, of course, How to Be a Player. Recall that Ward started out as a pitcher and a very good one, including throwing the second perfect game in history before moving to the field. His sympathies in this matter are still with the pitcher. Ward wrote, as to the question of signs, every battery by which is meant a pitcher and catcher must have a perfectly understood private code of signals so that they may make known their intentions and wishes to one another without at the same time apprising the opposing players. The first and, of course, most important of these is the signal by which the catcher is to know what kind of ball to expect. There's no necessity of more than one sign for this, because all that any experienced catcher asks is to know when to expect a fast straight ball. Not having received the signal for this, he will understand that a curve is to be pitched, and the difference in curve or speed will not bother him after a few moments' practice. 
They didn't have quite as many pitches to choose from back then. Until within a few years, the sign was always given by the pitcher. But now it is almost the universal practice for the catcher to give it to the pitcher. And if the latter doesn't want to pitch the ball asked for, he changes the sign by a shake of the head. I think the old method was the better because it is certainly the business of the pitcher not only to do the pitching, but to use his own judgment in deceiving the batsman. He should not act as a mere automaton to throw the ball. Moreover, the catcher has enough of his own to attend to without assuming any of the duties of the pitcher. Of course, if the pitcher is young and inexperienced, while the catcher is seasoned and better acquainted with the weak points of batters, the latter will be the better one to signal. We mentioned as much in our discussion last week. It may be thought that the right of the pitcher to reverse the sign by a shake of the head practically gives him the same control as though he himself gave the signs, but this is not strictly true. It is impossible for the pitcher not to be more or less influenced by the catcher's sign, and he will often pitch against his own judgment. At least I found this to be true in my own experience and therefore always preferred myself to do the signing. If the pitcher gives this sign, he must be careful to choose one that will not be discovered by the other side, for there are certain players always watching for such points. And he goes on to talk about how he tipped his signs in one game and was beaten badly, and how when he suspects a club of knowing his signs, he used a combination of signs. He concludes, if it be agreed that the catcher is to give this sign, it is still not necessary that the pitcher be entirely influenced by him. The pitcher should rely upon his own discretion and not hesitate to change the sign whenever his judgment differs from that of the catcher. So last week, I think I said something about how it would be an inversion of the natural order of things if the pitcher started calling his own signs. But in fact, it would be more of a throwback to the original natural order of things. Whether that makes you like it more or not, it's nice to know the origin story. And if you want to know many more origin stories about baseball, check out Richard's book, Strike Four, The Evolution of Baseball. You can also support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jacob Reed, Scott Suttmeyer, Teresa Gallagher, Brandon Forkham, and Darius Austin. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons. I know I say this all the time, but we're so close to a thousand members now. 998 as I read this, so you could be member number 1000. It'll be a fun place to talk about the WBC as it's going on, and of course the regular season. It's a hopping, thriving community. You also get access to monthly bonus podcasts hosted by me and Meg, plus playoff live streams and discounts on ad-free Fangrass memberships and other merch and great goodies, so check out patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can also message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can still email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, who is entering his final week, sadly, providing editing and production assistance for Effectively Wild. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. How can I make you believe that I don't sit and breathe? It's been a blue day for me. I can't pretend and say that I don't love her. Anyway, it's been a blue, blue day for me I feel like crying, dying What can I do? I feel like praying, saying I'm glad we're through It's been a blue, a blue day I 